No other book has so profoundly impacted so many lives as the Bible. Welcome to Simply the Bible, the Through the Bible teaching program of Pastor Daryl Zachman of Calvary Chapel, Treasure Valley. Today we see where King Omri and his son Ahab reign in Israel and do more evil in the sight of the Lord than all of their predecessors. But God raises up an amazing prophet. We hope you'll join us as Pastor Daryl continues in 1 Kings chapter 16 on Simply the Bible. It has been said that it is darkest just before dawn. Often, revival has come in the midst of great spiritual darkness, like the breaking of dawn. Usually, God sends His Word to awaken His people to the spiritual realities they've neglected. Such was the case in the northern kingdom of Israel. Since the advent of civil war dividing Israel into north and south, the northern kingdom didn't have a single good king they plunged into ever-deepening spiritual darkness. Now Amri, the commander of Israel's army, came into power. We continue in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Gainath, to make him king, and half followed Amri. But the people who followed Amri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Gainath. So Tibni died and Amri reigned. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Amri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents, 150 pounds of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. The hill of Samaria was about 300 feet high, and it commanded a view of the plain of Israelon, an important trade route. It was impregnable except by siege. As a military commander, Amri no doubt considered the strategic benefits of this location for the capital of the northern kingdom. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him, for he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Jeroboam and Baasha were Omri's predecessors. God ended the dynasties of each of these kings, and their descendants were completely wiped out. Meanwhile, David's dynasty continued in Judah. Now, wouldn't you think that Omri would take note of this and not follow the bad example of his predecessors? Maybe you've heard the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Aldous Huxley said that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons of history. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can learn what not to do from bad examples as surely as we can learn what to do from good examples. We don't have to repeat the same bonehead decisions of the past. 
Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab would prove to be a notoriously wicked king. Yet God would mercifully give him opportunities to repent, which unfortunately he never took. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went in and served Baal and worshipped him. Perhaps Ahab's greatest mistake was whom he chose to marry. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess. She was probably beautiful in appearance, a real knockout. But her outward beauty hid her wicked heart. Her name would be synonymous with evil incarnate throughout history. Even Jesus, in his letter to the church of Thyatira, referred to Jezebel. Just as no one would think of naming their son Judas, so no one would think of naming their daughter Jezebel. I have seen people make the same mistake as Ahab. They follow a pretty face all the way to the wedding altar with little or no thought to the character of the person they are marrying. Who you marry is the second most important decision you can make. The most important decision is is to put God first by believing in his son, Jesus Christ. Ahab failed in faith and family. Jezebel and Ahab became the proverbial Bonnie and Clyde of Israel. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Baal was the Phoenician fertility god who sent rain and bountiful crops, and the rites connected with his worship were unspeakably immoral. Lacking a system of irrigation as they had in Egypt, the Israelites were dependent upon natural rainfall to produce their crops. They easily fell into worshiping a god who supposedly would bring them rain. Throughout the period of the judges, the children of Israel had worshipped Baal, but never had a temple been built for him. No doubt Ahab was influenced by Jezebel when he decided to set up an altar, temple, and image of Baal. Jezebel's intention was to completely wipe out the worship of Yahweh and destroy all his prophets. And Ahab was a weak man who could not say no to his wife. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. This account is parenthetical to the story of Ahab and no doubt inserted here because this was the time that Jericho was rebuilt. 
But this was also a sign of the times, revealing the spiritual infidelity of the nation. Centuries before, after conquering Jericho, Joshua pronounced a curse. May the curse of the Lord fall on anyone who tries to rebuild the town of Jericho at the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. Hiel's undertaking cost him the lives of his eldest and youngest sons. So why did he do it? Was it ignorance of the curse or indifference that such an ancient proclamation could ever have any power in the present? We don't know. Either way, ignoring the word of God proved to be very costly for Hiel and his family. Chapter 17. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Here we are introduced to this amazing prophet. Elijah jumps off the pages as a man of God like none other. During a very dark time in Israel, God raised up a courageous prophet and miracle worker to call the nation to repentance. Elijah is introduced as a Tishbite. Now, what's a Tishbite? Nobody knows. Elijah came from the region of Gilead, which was east of the Jordan River. We know that Elijah's prophecy of a drought came by prayer. James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. For a nation so dependent on fall and spring rains, this prediction would be of grave concern to Ahab and Jezebel. In effect, Elijah was challenging Baal, the rain god. Yahweh controlled the weather. He promised to give rain if his people were obedient, but he also promised to withhold rain if they were disobedient. We must remember that God will always be faithful to his promises, whether to bring blessings or curses. James calls us to follow Elijah's example in earnest prayer. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah knew that God promised to withhold rain if his people were disobedient, so he prayed accordingly. Likewise, if we would pray effectively, then we must pray according to the word of God, believing that we have what we've asked for. How much faith do we really have when we pray? How much do we pray according to God's word? 1 John 5.14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Do you believe this? Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Kirith, which flows into the Jordan and it will be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Kirith, which flows into the Jordan. 
the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. After Elijah faithfully delivered his message to Ahab, the word of the Lord came to him, telling him to go east to the brook Kirith, which fed the Jordan River. Now, people want to know how they can be led by God. This is usually how it happens. God leads us one step at a time as our hearts are in tune with his word. Then, as we take the first step, he shows us the next step in his time. During this three-and-a-half-year drought, God provided for his faithful servant both naturally and supernaturally. Camping by a brook, Elijah naturally had all the water he needed for as long as the brook lasted. Supernaturally, God sent unusual couriers in the way of ravens who brought Elijah food twice a day. Elijah had just what he needed to get him through this drought. As believers, we may go through dry spells. Many of God's servants were taught valuable lessons in the desert. But through it all, His grace is sufficient to sustain us. It has been said that the will of God will never lead us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. In fact, you may find that God's grace and His provision are excellent guides to lead you in the path He has chosen. You've been listening to Simply the Bible, the Through the Bible teaching program of Pastor Daryl Zachman of Calvary Chapel, Treasure Valley. For more information about our church, please visit our website at calvarytv.org. To listen to other episodes, go to 941thevoice.com or check out our iTunes podcast. Tomorrow, we'll see where the Lord calls Elijah to go to a poor widow in Zarephath. God miraculously provides food for her and her son during the famine. We hope you'll join us as we continue in the book of 1 Kings on Simply the Bible.